Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. It's just me. No Adam Spinella. No Mark Schindler. No guests here. No anybody here. It's just me. We're going to talk about what happened tonight with the Phoenix Suns beating the Los Angeles Clippers. We're going to talk about the weirdest playoff game that I think I've ever seen in my life. The Brooklyn Nets losing to the Philadelphia 76ers despite James Harden being ejected. Joel Embiid probably should have been ejected, frankly. Uh, Nick Claxton also getting ejected. There were three ejection decisions in that game, and I'm not sure the officials got a single one of them right. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about the Warriors and the masterpiece that Kevon Looney painted tonight, uh, in addition to Stephen Curry just being incredible and just not saying die in this series so the place that i want to start is with the phoenix suns win over the los angeles clippers they beat them 129 to 124 in a game that devin booker had i don't know if this was his best playoff game ever i know that he came very close to setting a career high in points he had 45 i believe his career high is 46 in terms of points. But the thing that stands out to me most about Devin Booker at this point is that he is a relatively complete player now. Throughout the course of this game, he got buckets dropped on him. It happened. The reason it happened is because Russell Westbrook and Norman Powell were relentless in terms of attacking him. That was the reality of the situation. That was the reality of what the Los Angeles Clippers had to do in order to compete in this game. They needed somebody to step up and be aggressive. And it was Norman Powell and it was Russell Westbrook. At times it was Bones Highland. Uh, You know, there were other guys that stepped up in meaningful, minimal roles throughout the course of the game. But for the most part, It was Russell Westbrook and Norman Powell. And if you notice, I would venture that Devin Booker probably got more buckets scored on him than anybody else in this game for the Phoenix Suns. But I thought Devin Booker had a real impact defensively in terms of making things more difficult for those guys. Sometimes Norman Powell is just going to get hot and he's going to go 15 of 23 from the field and going to make seven threes. Not all of those threes were on Booker necessarily. And sometimes Russell Westbrook is going to go out and drop 30 with 11 assists because when Russ is hot and he is aggressive, he gets downhill and it's very difficult to keep him out of the paint. I thought Devin Booker did a better job than anybody else on Phoenix tonight at making life hard for those guys. And then on the other side, he dropped 45 points and was absolutely incredible on that end. Just the multitude of ways that Devin Booker can attack you, I think is what is most impressive to me when I watch him play at this point of his career. It's the pick and roll game where he will take a DeAndre Ayton screen, string it out very quickly and find that mid-range jumper that he loves or that leaning almost floater that has been such an integral part of his game over the course of his career. But beyond that, there's a lot more to it now. He'll attack a closeout, get all the way to the paint in transition. He has really improved his stride length, I think, to where he's able to get all the way to the basket aggressively now uh, out in transition. 
at a really, really high level to get easy buckets. Uh, if you don't get a body on him early, he is going to get all the way to the rim. And I thought that tonight was probably the best I've seen him play in the playoffs. I, I might be missing a game from their run to the NBA finals where they lost to the Milwaukee Bucks. But this felt like the most complete game, and it felt like the game, I don't know if it's the game where they needed him most, but they really did desperately need him because this was a very game Clippers team that just shot the absolute lights out on their home court. I mean, this team went 15 for 35 from three, shooting 42.9% from the field. They shot 54% from the field as a whole, uh, 42.9 from three, that is. It was a ridiculously impressive uh, seeing a team without this level of a star and without their top two stars, particularly in Kawhi Leonard, who missed this game with a sprained knee, as well as Paul George, who is out for this series, seemingly. Uh, all of these guys really stepped up in such a substantial way, and I think they deserve an immense amount of credit for it. Without Devin Booker playing at maybe the best level of his career to this point, and look, Devin Booker has gone out and dropped 70 points in a game before. He's gone out and had enormous impacts on the game, but I don't think that I've seen him at the level he has played this season uh, quite as often and quite as consistently as we've seen it uh, in recent weeks, in recent months. ever since he got back from his injury and just before uh, he got back from his injury. So Devin Booker is the reason they won this game. I think we should also talk about some of the reasons that this game was close to begin with. And in part, it had to do with Kevin Durant turning the ball over six times, which is very uncharacteristic. He had 28 points on 15 shots. He did not have a bad game necessarily. It's just that, When you turn the ball over six times, a lot of those turnovers were live ball turnovers that felt like led to Los Angeles Clippers transition buckets because a big part of what they tried to do tonight was actually go out and get those early buckets, get out and transition, have Russell Westbrook lead the break. I felt like those turnovers were really critical in keeping the Clippers in it. But there are two other factors that I think are actually much more important than what happened with Kevin Durant tonight. He's going to be fine. And I think his particular integration into this roster has been seamless. The problem for them is twofold right now. First, I think that when the Suns went out and acquired Kevin Durant, the idea was that this would be a big four with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant being the top two guys along with Chris Paul being able to get everybody the ball in the right exact spot that they need it. He's been fine at this point. He does seem to be a little bit diminished from his all NBA self, but I think he has been okay. The problem for the Suns right now for me is that DeAndre Ayton has not been a part of that big four that was envisioned. He has not played to that standard at this point. And I think it's worth diving into the moment where I felt like the Suns were fully operational in this game. It was the third quarter. 
the third quarter was incredible. They dropped 40 points. You saw in many ways the idealized version of what this Suns team can look like in part, I felt because you saw more of a downhill DeAndre Ayton attacking as opposed to the less aggressive DeAndre Ayton that unfortunately we have seen at times throughout his tenure in Phoenix and throughout this little run uh, with this group of players. It feels like instead of just rim running constantly and running all the way to the basket or being the short roll option, that is something he has to do semi-regularly when teams blitz the ball. The Clippers particularly tonight blitz the ball a reasonable amount out of ball screens and tried to get the ball out of guys like Devin Booker and Kevin Durant's hands. And when that happens, DeAndre does have to short roll. And I thought he had three, I think three, maybe four really high level passes to that cross corner whenever those guys got blitzed and he had to be the release valve in those options out of pick and rolls. One of them resulted in a turnover. It was just a drop pass, I believe, by Damian Lee. DeAndre could work on his ball placement, I think, but he's making the right decisions. I think he's seeing the court properly out of short rolls. The problem is when teams don't blitz the ball necessarily, I feel like DeAndre is a little bit too comfortable maybe in terms of sitting in that eight-foot range and not rolling all the way to the rim and forcing defenders to tag him. And that's, I thought, in the third quarter – what went really well for the Suns. There was a play where he kind of 45 cut off of a Kevin Durant drive, if I remember correctly. Durant hit a wraparound pass. uh, And I think that DeAndre either got fouled or just laid one in immediately. There was another one where out of a ball screen, he rolled all the way to the rim, went up for a dunk, and actually just got fouled on that play for sure and went to the foul line. And you know, I think he went one of two from the foul line. But that's the DeAndre Ayton that I think this Suns team needs more often than what we've seen it. We need to see DeAndre Ayton be the kind of player who's going to roll hard to the rim. He had a moment tonight that I thought was really emblematic of what the Ayton experience has been uh, a little bit too often uh, in Phoenix with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker thus far. He caught a pass, I believe it was from Torrey Craig. It was right on his right hip. It wasn't the easiest catch for him. But Norman Powell went for a steal on that play and just completely you know, did not get home, way over pursued. And DeAndre Ayton was alone at the basket with Nikola Batum. Instead of just pivoting and using his frame, his enormous six foot eleven with a seven foot five wingspan, 250 pound frame to pivot and try and dunk on Nikola Batum or pivot and pump fake or try and get Batum out of that play in some way. He just went up for a little hook shot and Batum swatted him uh, all the way to hell. And Nick Batum was in a dunk contest. He was one of the most athletic players in the NBA early in his career. He's not that anymore. There's no circumstance where DeAndre Ayton should not be trying to put Nick Batum in the basket. And I think that too often in the first, second, and fourth quarters, we saw DeAndre Ayton not be that aggressive-minded player that he needs to be for this team to reach 
its absolute ceiling. In the third quarter, we did. And I think it was a big part of why they went on that run in the third quarter. Another reason that DeAndre needs to do this is that we actually see something similar to this happen when Bismack Biombo is on the court. And this is nowhere near me saying that the Suns are more valuable when Bismack Biombo is on the court. They're not. It's that that ability to just rim run and roll opens things up, it feels like, for the rest of the offense. Bismack Biombo was a plus 18 in this game. And I thought that a big part of that was he did just help open up the offense a little bit by being that vertical gravitational force that the Suns need uh, a little bit more often than what I think DeAndre currently provides for them. Now, DeAndre has every tool and every capability to do this. There's no reason for him to go up for a hook shot uh, from two feet away from the rim when the only person in front of him is Bismack B- or is, uh, Nicola Batum. This is a DeAndre Ayton choice in many ways, I think. And for the Suns to reach their ceiling, I think we need to see DeAndre Ayton reach his in many ways. The other part of this is that Torrey Craig really stepped up tonight. I think he had 15 points looking at the box score now. Uh, he did. He had 15 points on five shots. Six of those were free throws. Three of those were three-pointers. Did have his five fouls. I don't necessarily know that the Suns are going to be able to count on that all the time. And I don't know that the Suns have figured out who their best five is. And I don't think they have figured out outside of Biombo, really at the center position, who they can count on in bigger moments. Damian Lee gave them eight points tonight. Josh Kogi did not play necessarily at the highest level we've seen him play. Did have six points and seven rebounds, but it felt like there was just something missing from his game tonight. It felt like the Clippers kind of got him a little bit more offensively when a Kogi was on defense than what we're used to seeing with Josh. And while my immediate reaction typically has been that I thought Josh would be their best fifth man in these lineups because I kind of trusted his shot a little bit more than Tory's. I do think that Tory Craig is starting at least to make his case for being that fifth player. The defensive continuity is still not quite there for this group yet. And that's where I'm trying to figure out and where I think probably Monty Williams and the staff is trying to figure out who can be that fifth man that provides that defensive continuity that they need. Part of it, again, and I don't mean to harp on this, is that DeAndre Ayton, I thought tonight, did not do a good enough job of protecting the basket in weak side scenarios. Uh, Part of this is that uh, when teams really get them into rotation, this team just does not have a lot of experience together. And I think you see the occasional uh, mishap in terms of rotations. And I think you see some occasional communication mishaps uh, when teams try and run a ghost screen action, when teams try and uh, get them in dribble handoff and exchanges and things like that. But I do think that what the Suns need moving forward is that fifth man to really emerge and step up. And I think someone will. I think that it's probably going to be Tory Craig or Josh Okogie. I think they probably need one more bench player, be it TJ Warren or Landry Shamit. They've tried Ish Wainwright uh, earlier in this series. Uh, you know, Maybe it's Terrence Ross at some point. Uh, they need probably seven guys, I think. And I don't think they have seven. I think right now they really have like three and a half. 
the good news is that those three and a half are so good that they're able to beat a Clippers team that was undermanned tonight. And they are potentially well positioned to cause a lot of problems for the Denver Nuggets, especially if DeAndre Ayton can be the guy that we've seen against Nikola Jokic in previous playoff series. That's the kind of the spiel on Phoenix tonight. I think we need to see more of them just continuity wise uh, in order to understand how deep they can go. I wouldn't be surprised if this is the rare team that we see keep getting better and better and better throughout the playoffs though, because again, this team played something like nine games with all four of their top four players together. Uh, I mean, if this series goes six games between these two teams, that's going to almost double their experience playing together. Uh, So this is an unfinished product that has NBA title aspirations and a genuine NBA title ceiling. This is the game that kind of made me decide that I wanted to go live and talk about it tonight because I I found the Suns' performance very intriguing. And I think Devin Booker deserves his flowers for what was an incredible performance that the team desperately needed uh, in the face of Russell Westbrook being a monster defensive player, particularly. He did a great job on Kevin Durant, I thought, in moments tonight and throughout the first two games in this series, as well as uh, I felt that we need to talk a little bit about what's going on with Phoenix's depth players as well. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to dive into the weirdest game that uh, I've seen in a long time in the playoffs. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, 
With Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back. We're now going to talk a little bit about the weirdest game I've ever seen in the playoffs, which is the (laughs) Philadelphia 76ers beating the Brooklyn Nets. And I, I, look, this series is somewhat uncompetitive because this Nets team is just not talented enough to stick with the Philadelphia 76ers as currently constructed. The 76ers have too much offensive firepower as compared to the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets tried to dust off Cam Thomas tonight for 11 minutes. And yes, he went three of six from the field. He had six points, but he also was a minus nine in the time that he was out there and had a lot of defensive breakdowns. And he's just not a guy that you can really trust in a playoff setting at this point. And I thought it was kind of emblematic of how much they're really searching for offense a lot of the time. Uh, when they're out on the court against this Philadelphia team that frankly, I feel like they're playing okay defensively. I think Joel Embiid is certainly providing a real impactful rim presence, but this was not Joel's best night defensively. Uh, I felt like in general, this was not the Philadelphia 76ers best night defensively. And they still held Brooklyn to 97 points because it was largely a half court game. And Brooklyn does not have the guys off the bounce that can really break down defenses in half court settings. And uh, until that happens, I think that Brooklyn is probably not going to have much playoff success moving forward, much as I like Mikhail Bridges as a terrific, uh, you know, essentially second or third option on a very good team uh, in a playoff setting. But let's go to the number of things that happened that made this game incredibly weird. And we will start with Joel Embiid getting stepped over by Nick Claxton and then deciding to try to kick Nick Claxton. It looked like in the junk. Joel Embiid should have been ejected for this, like unequivocally. He should have been absolutely removed from the game. And because he wasn't, and because he got, I believe, a flagrant one, it felt like the referees were looking for an opportunity to make it even. And they did. By ejecting James Harden, for what looked to be just an incidental push-off when he was a ball handler on the right wing trying to just separate from Royce O'Neal. And he just caught Royce O'Neal a little bit low with the push-off. I have never seen someone get ejected for something like that. I can't imagine a circumstance where that was James Harden's goal there, was to do something dirty. They just didn't, the story doesn't line up there, right? The story there would be that Royce O'Neal has been bothering him so much throughout this series that he felt like he had to get even. Royce O'Neal has not been very good in this series. So I don't understand why that would be the story that Tony Brothers and this crew thought was 
being told there because on some level the story does matter and the action matters but the story matters because you're trying to determine intent and i can't understand where they got the intent there that makes this a flagrant to where james harden was ejected and the weirdness did not stop because then Nick Claxton gets ejected after James Harden for essentially celebrating a dunk on Joel Embiid. And like, I guess he bumped into Tobias Harris. It had to be more for the flex. And look, I, I if you're Nick Claxton, you have to be smart there. You can't necessarily react to everything that's happening around you and have that moment. But it's a weak technical, man. That's a weak technical to have someone ejected for uh, in a playoff game when really all he did was flex. So across the board, I thought it was a terribly officiated game. I thought they let this thing get way overly physical. Uh, Joel Embiid was flying and I don't even know if like flopping is the right word, but because he tries to fall all the time uh, and fall in a way that hinders him or stops him from getting hurt. I get it, but the whole game was very odd and it felt like to me, the Sixers go down early. They bring it back in the second quarter to where I believe they're leading at halftime by double digits. And then Brooklyn goes on a run. And part of why Brooklyn went on a run and part of why Brooklyn started this game so hot was that I think Jacques Vaughn's defensive strategy in this game was incredibly intelligent i saw people kind of complaining about wait why are they uh, aggressively doubling joel Embiid? well joel Embiid had eight turnovers in the previous game and if you can stop him from going down on the block against your 220 pound center and your complete lack of depth at the big position you're probably winning because by doubling him you're probably stopping him from going down on the block and on top of it you're forcing joel Embiid into making decisions out of double teams which is something throughout his career that he has generally struggled a little bit more with than you expect to see an elite player struggle with. So I liked that aspect of it. Early on, I did not like the idea that they were aggressively closing out on Tyrese Maxey and DeAnthony Melton and just allowing those guys to attack easy closeouts that were out of control. The problem with that to me was that Specifically with Maxi, you were letting Tyrese Maxi kind of get a rhythm and kind of get hot. And if you didn't stop doing it, he was just going to blow by you every time because Maxi has incredible touch inside of eight feet and also from behind the three point line, which is part of why you do want to close out on Maxi. But you need to be under control because this is what makes Maxi such a lethal scorer. He is somebody that can attack that closeout, get into that eight foot range, hit a little floater. I felt like if you let him get hot, he is going to kill you. That did end up happening after the Harden ejection because the team went to Maxi as their lead ball handler. And Maxi, if I remember correctly, had seven or eight straight points in the fourth quarter to really kind of salt this thing away for the Philadelphia 76ers in a moment where they pretty desperately needed it. The thing is, though, that the reason that I liked it in general for Brooklyn is overall it worked to speed up Philadelphia and it made their life harder. And while 
I was skeptical at the time that Tyrese Maxey was going to get in a rhythm. And while that skepticism was borne out uh, as something that did happen, the overall cumulative effect that you saw with the Philadelphia 76ers, I thought was pretty real. Brooklyn frustrated them by getting way into their space, by doubling them, by forcing them to move the ball. This is a team built not exactly like the Daryl Morey Houston Rockets, but with James Harden and with guys that are good passers, but their immediate reaction is not to make those passes along the string and along the chain across the perimeter when you're scrambling to try and recover defensively. I feel like that is the biggest, most significant piece of why this was a smart strategy for Brooklyn. Force this Philadelphia 76ers team to make passes. Force this team to make plays. Force this team to take advantage of the marginal advantages that they have and find the open player. They're skilled enough to where they have the shooting to be able to take advantage of it. It's just that I feel like they often don't necessarily do it because a lot of their guys tend to be guys that hold the ball for that extra split second and try and survey things that are happening across the court. A very bizarre game, a game that was weird because of the way that Brooklyn decided to play this defensively. And I think Brooklyn deserves a lot of credit for trying to create this structure and this game and this kind of vibe within this game that made it as competitive as it was and that ultimately made it as close as it was. Because again, this is a team that is just very outmanned at this point offensively in terms of firepower. So the fact that they have all these switchable defenders who can really get into people's grill, Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith, Mikhail Bridges. Cam Johnson's not a great defender, but he's bigger and longer and at least has reasonable feet. Sometimes you can kind of blow through his chest because he's not all that strong, but he is someone that is at least mobile and can fly around a little bit. Uh, certainly Nick Claxton is another guy that is uh, very quick for a big man, and you can do sort of blitzing ball screens, and you can try and uh, scramble around with him and rotate around with him. Like th- There are a number of things that you can do if you're Brooklyn defensively. And I love the way that they decided to embrace that. I love the way that they decided to try and be aggressive with Philadelphia. And ultimately now the question is, I think Boston will try and do something similar. The problem for Philadelphia is that Boston has much more offensive firepower than Brooklyn does. And I worry that what Brooklyn is doing more so than creating wins for themselves is actually creating a blueprint for Boston, even beyond what they already need, because Boston has had real success over this Philadelphia 76ers team in recent years. It feels like Brooklyn is really creating a template for Boston uh, to a to be able to potentially have some real success here against the Philadelphia 76ers, because it feels like Philadelphia has not necessarily learned uh, from the past that we've seen them struggle with. So, 76ers win. They're up 3-0. You know, they are playing a team that they should be sweeping, in my opinion. When you have Joel Embiid, James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, uh, you're deeper than the Brooklyn Nets are Is in addition to that. This should be a sweep. I think it probably will be a sweep. But I don't know if we've seen enough from Philadelphia yet that really gives me confidence 
going into a potential uh, series against Boston in that 2-3 matchup. The last game of the night was the Golden State Warriors against the Sacramento Kings. This is the game I'm going to spend the least amount of time on because it just felt like, more than anything, the Golden State crowd really got into Sacramento's heads as a young team playing their first road game in a high-level playoff environment like you're going to get at Golden State. Uh, Sacramento had a ton of open looks in this game. My buddy Rob Doster, as people may have seen online, was giving me shit because I told him to bet the over in this game. Over was right around 241, uh, I think is where it closed. And I told him to bet it, A, because of what we talked about on the show last night with Adam Spinella, where, or I'm sorry, with Mark Schindler, where we talked about how without Draymond Green, I felt like they would try and run and gun and just try and outscore Sacramento. And that ended up being what happened. The first quarter was plated an incredibly frenetic, energetic, up and down pace. The Kings shot 47 threes. The Golden State Warriors shot 50 threes in this game. The problem is that the Kings shot 23% from three. And a lot of those shots were open. I'm going to pull up the synergy numbers while we're talking. But I would venture a majority of the shots that the Sacramento Kings missed from beyond the three-point line were probably of the open variety when it came to threes. And it just felt like, to me, the kind of game that a young team loses on the road to an experienced Golden State team that has been there before and has their backs up against the wall. Certainly, Draymond Green was missing from this game. I felt like the Warriors were pretty likely to come out with a lot of energy and a lot of aggressiveness to try and make up for not having the guy around that typically brings that energy and aggressiveness for them. Now, two things happened in this game that I thought really swung it for Golden State. The first, Stephen Curry just went supernova and decided we're not letting this get to 3-0 to where we have to have an incredible comeback to beat the Sacramento Kings that, you know, frankly, given the fact that the Kings still have two more road games or two more home games, the Golden State Warriors still have two more road games in this series. Given how poor the Warriors have been on the road this year, I don't know if they can come back from 3-0 in order to beat the Kings if they have to win two road games. The key for the Warriors is having to win one road game, in my opinion. Stephen Curry dropped 36 points. He was plus 24 tonight. He had six rebounds. He had three assists. His off-ball cutting was tremendous. Obviously, he had a number of just exceptionally high-level three-point shots, particularly starting in that third quarter where it really just felt to me like he wanted to take over the game at a really high level. He really just wanted to have that kind of avalanche moment that we're so used to seeing from Stephen Curry. It didn't quite happen because the Kings for all of the fact that this always felt like a double digit game in the second half, they did stop and stem the avalanche. Now, uh, the problem for them was purely on offense in this game. I thought defensively, they were 
pretty okay. Like Davion Mitchell did a good job of chasing around. Uh, De'Aaron Fox, I thought, did an okay job of chasing around again. Uh, they made life hard on Steph. Steph just dropped 36. The big problem for Sacramento in this game was Kevon Looney. And this was, I, I you know, tweeted earlier that this was a legacy game for Kevon Looney in a Warriors jersey. And I meant it. You typically don't see legacy games from fifth starters that average six, seven points a game. This was one. Kevon Looney is going to go down as a beloved Golden State Warrior for all of the contributions that he has made over the course of this dynasty. Tonight wasn't his best game necessarily, but it was in the top three or four. And it was in a spot where the Warriors front court desperately needed somebody to step up. Kevon Looney did that. He only scored four points in this game, but he had 20 rebounds, including nine on the offensive end, six before halftime in order to get the Golden State Warriors that double-digit lead. He had nine assists. And those, those nine assists, in my opinion, are the key number. Moreover, more so than the rebounding. The rebounding is going to get all of the press tomorrow. It's going to get all of the hype. It's going to get all of the accolades. The assists were the big part. Because the thing typically the Golden State misses when Draymond Green is out of the lineup is that ability to find quick ball movement, quick decision-making, short roll playmaking, uh, short corner playmaking, rapid reaction passing and decision-making. Kevon Looney brought all of that tonight, despite Draymond Green not being on the court. Kevon Looney is the reason I think that they won this game. Offensively, his contributions were invaluable. Uh, typically, Kevon Looney is not providing you with 20 points of offensive production in a game like he did tonight with his nine assists and the four points. He averaged, he had more than 20 tonight. Kevon Looney also provided real defensive impact, in my opinion, for Sacramento. Sacramento was okay on the interior tonight, but the thing that Looney did is he never let Demonis Sabonis really get free. He never let Sabonis get space. Part of this was that the uh, Warriors did a really good job of collapsing down on Demonis Sabonis whenever he got the ball. Part of it was that Kevon Looney was able to stand him up in the moments where they really needed someone to be able to contest shots at the basket from Demonis Sabonis. Sabonis had an okay game today. Uh, he had 15 points. He had 16 rebounds. He had four assists. But those 15 points came on 15 shooting possessions, 14 field goal attempts, plus two free throws. And he had six turnovers in addition to those 15 shooting possessions. That is everything that you need to know about how good Kevon Looney was in this game. Demonis Sabonis is one of the most efficient, effective, impactful centers in the NBA. He's going to be a third team, all NBA center. Kevon Looney stood him up, made his life incredibly difficult, absolutely wrecked him on the glass. Again, I know that Sabonis had 16 rebounds, but a lot of those were easier defensive rebounds that kind of came to him. And, Defensive rebounds for Sabonis are valuable. They allow him to start the break. They allow the Kings to get into their offense earlier before the Warriors' defense is set. But a lot of those rebounds came in the first quarter when Sacramento 
was just an absolute mess offensively. And it felt like they were, I think at one point two for like 14, two for 13 from three and just absolutely nothing was falling. So I don't think Sabonis's work on the glass was quite as impactful as those 16 rebounds will make it look like Kevon Looney's 20 rebounds were even uh, more impactful than what that enormous number makes it look like Uh, when Looney only had six rebounds, I went back and checked and I believe that they had scored 11 points off of Looney's six offensive rebounds at that time. In addition to that, he had 11 defensive rebounds and really did not allow Demonis Sabonis to create those second chance opportunities that he often does for the Sacramento Kings offense. So to me, this was an incredibly important Kevon Looney game, an incredibly important uh, Golden State Warriors win. They're going to get Draymond Green back now. They're going to be at home in front of their uh, Chase Center crowd again uh, for the next game, game four here. And I think this thing's going to go back to Sacramento 2-2. And it wouldn't have gone back to Sacramento 2-2, I think, if Kevon Looney did not set a tone and provide the defensive power that the Golden State Warriors needed desperately throughout this game. Uh, That's all I've got, though. That's everything from me tonight. Uh, We're going to do this a little bit more often. We're probably going to make it a little bit more interactive more often. I just kind of have a lot of thoughts about these three games tonight. Uh, Also, when we finish, when we get this thing going a little bit earlier, I think it's going to be a little bit easier to get more people involved, to have people ask some questions throughout the time. Ended up being a little bit late because I wanted to go back and rewatch that second half of the Phoenix Suns game to try and figure out what went so right in the third quarter what started to fall apart a little bit in the fourth quarter. And I think we're going to, you know, try and make this a little bit more fun moving forward. Having said that, that's 40 minutes of me talking. This has been the game theory podcast. Please remember rate review, subscribe to everything you can to support the show. We'll be back probably tomorrow night. There are three games that are pretty interesting at the very least. Uh, we do have another Denver Timberwolves game that, you know, hopefully we get another Anthony Edwards, Jamal Murray show. We have a Boston Hawks game that, frankly, I'm not all that interested in. Uh, And then finally, I believe that the other game tomorrow, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, is a Cavs-Knicks game that I actually am pretty excited about and will be uh, very, very thrilled to break down. So probably tomorrow night. If not, we will be back on Saturday to break down the four games that are on Saturday that will be enormous games. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.